Thanks very much, Vicky. Do keep that reading open. We'll look at this morning and uh, ask the Lord to speak to us through it. Let's pray now as we do that. So, Lord, we thank you for your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he speaks to us through this, your written word, and we pray that by your spirit you'll open our hearts and our, our eyes to what you would say and to who you would have us be and above all to who you truly are as we read in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever been hiking, uh, you'll know the importance of a compass. A little thing with a needle on it that points north so that if you get lost in the fog or up a hill somewhere, you can at least know the direction that you should be heading. But have you ever thought that in our daily lives we all need, in fact we all have, a kind of internal compass as well. Something that, that guides, that decides our direction, our decisions in life. Uh, example, I th- think of a student, friend of mine called James. Um, I studied medicine with him years ago. And from day one at medical school, he was, James was set on one day becoming a successful orth- orthopedic surgeon. He knew that from the moment he started. And lo and behold, that's exactly how his life has transpired. And he's now doing very well, thank you. What was his compass? His compass was career. Very clear that's what he was going to do. Well, I think of Jill. I took her funeral some years ago at the service. Everyone that spoke about her spoke very warmly about how much she loved and cared for her family. How much she invested in everything she did on behalf of her children and her grandchildren. What was her compass? Well, it was, it was family, wasn't it? Family comes first. Well, we've come from Abraham's dramatic test in last chapter 22. If you were here last week, Abraham was tested by God, called to go and offer his own son that he'd waited for for years as a sacrifice to the Lord. We saw that extraordinary test of faith that he went through. And we come this week to 23, this chapter, and we slightly think, don't we, what's this story doing in the Bible at all? Because you've got a, a, a very brief funeral and then a very long extended, basically, property negotiation. What's this doing here? Well, the next two chapters as well, 24, 25, are also about this transition, handing over from one generation, Abraham and Sarah, to the next, Isaac and his family. So next time we'll see a wedding negotiation for Isaac as Abraham makes sure his son is well married. And then in 25, Abraham dies as well. What's this chapter, Sarah's death, a property negotiation doing here? I want to suggest that to work out the answer to that, we go back in our Bibles and look at the promises which God made to Abraham right back in chapter 12, the beginning really of Abraham's story. So would you turn back with me a few pages to Genesis 12. So if you're in 23, page 23 still, just go back to, to chapter 12, page 13. And I'll read just there, verses 1 to 3. Here's the promise. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people in your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. 
I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the promises that God made to Abraham. That's been his compass, the guiding force for him ever since. And did you see there, there are three things promised, aren't there, to Abraham? We've seen before, there's a people, a promise of a family in his and Sarah's old age. He's already 75. Sarah's 10 years younger. They won't see a son born, Isaac, for another 25 years yet. But God will come good on that promise. People. Secondly, blessing. Blessing upon him and his family and through him and his family on the nations around them who in turn bless Abraham's family. And thirdly, a land, a home in Canaan, far from his own family back in Haran, back in modern-day Iraq, a land in Canaan. And this third promise, the promise of land, has not yet come true. He and Sarah have been camping in Canaan for probably some 50 years by now. And they have still no rights and no real estate there. Now, Abraham's been trusting God for these promises. They've been his compass for his decisions. If the Lord asked him to sacrifice Isaac, as he did last time in chapter 22, he will do so trusting that God will still give him a family. So you can see now, can't you, if you're back in chapter 23 now, on page 23, which of those three promises is the big promise in this chapter, the big question in this chapter, will God come good on this promise? It's the promise of the land, isn't it? All about property and land in Canaan. And I would argue, actually, that the decision about where to bury his wife Sarah is as important as a test of Abraham's faith in those promises as was the call to sacrifice Isaac last time now Sarah let's turn and look at Sarah now we see her in verse 1 127 years old she's not had an easy life her husband had twice passed her off as his sister to save his own skin and she and Abraham have had this promise of a child they've seen their golden anniversary go by and their diamond anniversary and their platinum and what's after platinum anyone know And they've still been waiting. Then Isaac's born. But as Isaac reaches his teens, Abraham takes him off, not to watch the football like most dads would do, but to sacrifice him up a hill far away, not knowing if she'll see him again. And she's lived and and followed the promise of God through that, and her great age... I think she's the only one in the Bible mentioned, the only woman in the Bible mentioned for her age at her death, 127 years. She's been a great woman of faith, and Abraham wants to honor her with a burial. But where should he bury her? Usually, when someone dies far from their homeland, we want to be buried back home, don't we? We repatriate, don't we, in order to bury back in our own country. 
And for her, that would have been back in Haran or Ur of the Chaldeans. But Abraham wants to bury her in accordance with his compass. And his compass says, God's promised this land to our descendants, our family. This is where I should bury her. Instead of giving up on the promise and saying, look, we've been here for decades. There's no sign of us ever inheriting this land as our own. Sarah's died now. For all the... I'm going to just take her home and bury her at home. He holds on to the promise, doesn't he? So, very politely, instead of heading off back in the caravans and packing up and going home, he goes to the local estate agents and starts to negotiate for a bit of land. Very politely, he wants a plot for Sarah and the rest of their future family. Have a look at verse 4. He says to them, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. I don't know how long it takes for someone to become a local in Norfolk. Possibly it is in in the 50, 60 years region, isn't it? But I love the fact that he's been in Canaan 50 years or so, and he still knows he's a stranger and a foreigner here. He has no rights, no estate of his own yet. But where we bury our dead, it does say a great deal, doesn't it, about what's important to us, about where matters to us. And he here, by saying, I want a burial plot in the promised land, he's saying, isn't he, I'm going to hold on to that promise of God however long we have to wait for it rather than give up on it and go home and bury her there. In his first letter in the New Testament, Peter, the Apostle Peter says that we're the same. Like Abraham, we are strangers and foreigners in this world. We may have lived here for, I don't know how old you are, 20, 30, 40, 100 years. But this is what Peter says. He says, live out your time as foreigners here with reverent fear. That means with, with honoring God in your hearts. That's 1 Peter 1.17. 1 Peter 2.12. As foreigners and exiles. The same words Abraham uses. Foreigners and strangers. Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Beware the attachments, the desires the charms of this world, as Abraham did. Set your heart on the promises of God instead. That's Abraham's compass, and it's ours too. Set your hearts on the promises of God to come. But having set his heart on where to bury Sarah, he's still got this thing about how to bury her, hasn't he? How is he going to get this land? And when he makes that approach in verse 4, the Hittites appear very sort of polite to him, don't they? Sir, uh, listen to us. You know, you're a great prince among us. Please don't think about buying something. Have the pick of the choices of our tombs and put your wife in there. Seems a very generous offer, doesn't it? Very tempting. One of the choicest Hittite tombs in Canaan. But I wonder if you notice there's a difference between what Abraham is asking for and what they're offering him. Very big difference for him. They want to give him a grave, one of their graves, to share and put Sarah into. He wants to buy some land 
to bury his family. And it's all the difference between those two, isn't there? This graveyard is a sign that one day God's going to make good his promise. One day they'll have the land for their family, as God has promised. It's a bit like, uh, sorry to bring up football after Friday evening's result, but a bit like if someone offers you perhaps a spare ticket for their seat at the next Canaries home game. They're not giving you a season ticket for life by doing so. They're just loaning you a space because it's available. That's a, don't get me wrong, that's a lovely thing to do. Um, and if you've got any going, then you know, we'd love to know. Uh, but seriously, that's very different, isn't it, from someone saying, this is yours for the rest of your life and in perpetuity for your family. The Hittites want to give Abraham a bit of charity, but they're not about to give him land. Oh, no, that's theirs. But Abraham presses on. He names in verse 8, Ephron's field is the one that he wants to make a buy from. Um, to get the, the bit of land at the end of the field, he says, he asks him to name a price. Ephron sort of, sort of draws you, sucking in his teeth, and, oh, you know, it's a, it's a valuable bit of land, that. Um, well, I'm not sure I can sell it to you, but, you know, um, listen to me. Uh, just, just have it. I give it to you. Bury your dead there. Gets very tempting for everyone to go, fantastic, I'll, I'll have that. Um, I'll go and bury Sarah right away. To settle for the compromise of effectively a gift of land from Canaanites rather than buying it at considerable cost. Very tempting, isn't it? The world's offers always look so tempting, but they so often call us to compromise on the promises of God if we accept them. That's what's going on with Abraham, isn't it? And he knows this is not the right way forward. It's so tempting to compromise, but he won't. He won't settle for a gift from the Canaanites. He'll only take an inheritance from the Lord. So insists on paying for the land, having it publicly witnessed, verse 17, made over to him the field with its caves and its trees, legally written up and signed and witnessed, so that for generations to come there can be no dispute. This is the land of God's people. Now, it's not much, is it? It's a a small plot of land. He, he wrinkled his brother Nahor back in Haran. He says, great news, Nahor. I've managed to get some land at last after 50 years. And Nahor says, that's, that's great. You, you said God had promised you the whole land. Is that right? And he says, well, yeah, but actually it's kind of not quite the whole land. In fact, it's not even like an estate. Well, okay, I'll be honest. I've bought a graveyard. It's not much, is it? But it's a down payment. It's a small sign that one day the Lord will come good on that promise of a home for his family, for eternity. Why does Abraham go to such lengths to bury Sarah in this plot of land that he's buying? It's because his compass is the promise of God, and he will not compromise on it. Now, if you're needing any convincing further that we're reading this chapter and understanding what God's saying in the right way, turn with me, would you, to Hebrews. So we'll turn right back on now to Hebrews chapter 11. 
in the New Testament. It's on page 1,209. Hebrews 11, 1,209. Because Hebrews speaks about the faith of Abraham. And it speaks very much about today's passage. So let's pick it up, shall we, at verse 8. By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. That's his son and his grandson. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations... That's what we call heaven, the new creation, whose architect and builder is God. And then let's jump on to verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Verse 16. They were, looking for a, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Isn't that helpful to see how Abraham's faith is set on promises, not just of a physical land of Canaan, but a heavenly city, an eternal kingdom of God, where he and Sarah and their children, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and their son, Jacob, and his son Joseph, would all not just be buried in that burial plot, but one day raised in the kingdom of God. That's Abraham's compass. The promises of God. Not the world's values and desires, but the promises of God for his family's future. So let me ask three questions that I think Abraham's faith makes us ask about ourselves today. Here's the first one. Do you know in your heart that although heaven is a spiritually a bigger journey than any distance we can travel on earth, it's easier to transfer your riches there, to invest there, than to anywhere else on this earth. All you need to do, you see, is do what Abraham does here. It's to make the promise of God your compass, to set your heart on his kingdom and his righteousness, as Jesus puts it. Not on the happiness, the security, the charms, the desires of this world. That's all you have to do, to, in other words, to put Christ first, to turn from sin and to turn to him as the center of your life, your compass from this day forward. Think of the missionary Jim Elliot, who was martyred, taking the words of Christ to uh, natives in Ecuador last century. He famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Abraham was doing, wasn't it? He set his heart on the country to come, the promises of God, not on the riches, the security, the comfort of this life. 
You see, that's why Christ died for us. To set our hearts free from the sin that draws us from him and to give us his spirit to enable us to set our hearts on eternity in Christ. Will you make his promises your, your promises today? Why would you not want to trust the promises of God that are so wonderful? Second question. Every funeral we take is a sign of what the compass of the person whose life we're celebrating was, what was most important to them. What would you like us to say at your funeral? What would you like, as it were, your legacy to be? What will be the, the footprint of your life that you leave behind? Will we say of you that you, you live for yourself? You did very well, thank you. Or to say that you invested everything in your family? Your compass was your career or your comfort or, or your relatives? And those are, in different ways, good things. Abraham's saying, isn't he, don't let them be your compass. The thing that decides your decisions, big and small. I think of maybe some of us who are going to be spending tomorrow back in the office, back at work. What's your compass going to be at work? Are you there to pay the bills, to earn enough and some time off at the weekend to have a good time, and reward yourself to have a good holiday next year? Or are you there to honour Christ with integrity in how you do your job? And are you there to pray for opportunity to speak of Christ so that your colleagues can hear about the promises of God as well? Or those of us that are parents here, what's the legacy that we want to leave our children with? Is it that we spend all of our time and money investing in their education, which is important, in their clubs and activities that they attend, which again is very valuable socially? Or is it that we spend our time reading God's word with them, pouring the love of Christ into them, teaching them to pray how to trust in God so that they too can set their compass on the promise of God as we are? What's your legacy going to be? Third question. Maybe here this morning you are wondering, how will I keep going with these promises when life is tough? And Abraham is saying, isn't he? He had a tough life. Don't let discouragement make you lose hold of the promises of God. Because these promises connect us with absolute security to the inheritance we have in Christ. We saw, if you're in small groups, we saw in Titus a few weeks ago, Titus 3, verse 7, Paul says that we are heirs, inheritors, having the hope of eternal life. We are heirs, inheritors, children of God, Paul calls us. That's our inheritance. That's what is most valuable to us in what Christ has done. Why would I want to let the circumstances of this life, however tough they are, make me stop looking forward 
to my inheritance. Make me abandon my inheritance. Peter, in chapter 1 of 1, Peter says that we have an inheritance that can neither perish, spoil, nor fade, kept in heaven for us. The salvation of God. Those promises are amazing. They are so rich to us who follow Christ. We've been promised, haven't we, forgiveness to all who come, strength in time of weakness, hope in time of suffering, that God works for good in all things in our lives. He's given us his spirit as a down payment, a guarantee of our inheritance. Those are the promises we have. Why would I want to abandon those when God has been so rich, so generous, when I was so undeserving? So, friends, next time we're going to see how Abraham's compass helped him to uh, decide how to find a suitable wife for Isaac. But as we go into this week ahead, let's not settle you and I this week for comfort and compromise in this world when the compass of God's promises is leading us elsewhere. Let's pray for someone this week. Who can you pray for who is struggling to keep their compass pointing towards God? That they will be faithful in that. Let's pray for each other to be faithful to the covenant promises of God this week. Let's help each other to fix our eyes on the inheritance to come. Let's pray. As a prayer, we're going to pray together in a moment um, on the service sheet, the white service sheet, the prayer at the top of the order of service, which is one of the Anglican special prayers Before we pray that, let's take a moment to read that prayer through. It speaks about uh, the desires, the affections that we have naturally that take us from God. It speaks about the grace of God that teaches us to desire what he promises. About in this changing world, fixing our hearts by grace where our lives are safe in the heavenly city whose architect and founder is God. So let's pray together. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.